0: You are
1: listening to The Historical Bookworm Show. For lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction, join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is
0: Kylie Woodley. And Darcy Fournier.
2: Darcy and I will be doing something a little bit different today. First, we'll be mentioning the giveaways before the interview. And then, if you stick around after the bookworm review... We'll share a little bit about our weekend this fall season.
0: We have two giveaway winners to announce today. Come Down Somewhere by Jennifer L. Wright was won by Molly. And we just sent an email to the winner of Beneath the Bending Skies by Jane Kirkpatrick.
2: Now, current giveaways that are open if you would like to enter to win... We have Kimberly Woodhouse's A Gem of Truth, and that will end in just one week, October 16th, which I believe is a Sunday. And now for the interview. Our guest today is the author of seven novels, including Christie Award winner, The House on Foster Hill, and Carol Award winner, The Reckoning at Gossamer Pond. She's also the Publishers Weekly and ECPA bestselling author of two novellas. Jamie Jo Wright, welcome to the
0: Historical Bookworm Show.
1: Hello, thank you for having me. We are glad to have you
0: back. And I know you have been crazy busy with writing deadlines and your podcast and Madlet Mentoring. So our first question is probably one you haven't had time to think about. <laughs> probably not. If you could go on vacation anywhere in the world that you wanted with all expenses paid, where would you go?
1: Oh, I, that's easy. I would go back to Rome. I am an all-out Rome girl. Oh, really? So you've been before. I've been before. And I told my husband that we're retiring to Rome. He's not exactly keen on the idea, but I'll win him over, I'm sure.
0: <laughs> oh, yes. There's always some angle. Actually, with my dad, when my mom and my sisters and I decided we wanted to move to Florida. He was like, I grew up in Miami. I don't want to move back to Florida. But with careful exposure and good reasoning, we want him over to Northern Florida being different than Miami. So,
1: Oh, see, that makes total sense.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. So if you just find the right angle, I'm sure you've got it.
1: But what do you love about Rome? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I feel like If I believed in past lives, which for the record, I do not, I would say that I lived my life in Rome and I'm Roman, but (laughs) no, I just love the atmosphere. Everything about Rome is just like, you're in, you're just engulfed in ancient history and you sit on the piazzas and you sip your espresso and you read and people just go by and then you go into a church and you go into their basement and you're literally walking the hidden underground of Rome. And it's just, I don't know. Something about it's very mis- mysterious. That's probably why I like it so much.
0: Yes. That's cool. Sometimes you go to places that you've
1: never seen before and you're like, this could totally be home. And it does. It, d- it did. It really had that home like feeling, which is funny because I'm a country girl. Like, I grew up in the woods, I live in the woods, I drive pickups and wear sweatpants. Daily. So I'm not exactly like European chic or anything, but.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but that's your place. But that's my place. That's awesome. So, of what recent writing activities have you attended that have been truly refreshing or inspiring?
1: Oh, gosh. I love going to the Fiction Reader Summit in Grand Rapids. I was there in May. And it's just a fun atmosphere of readers and authors coming together in a very, refreshing is a good word. It's just a very refreshing time of fellowship. It's less formal. It's not like a conference so much like it's a weekend to hang out with everybody. And I love that. I love just hanging out with readers and other authors and coming away with friends. And I would say that's probably one of the most refreshing experiences I've had this year for sure
0: sounds like it's more of an opportunity to just dig into what you love about writing and story rather than focusing on how to better your craft or better your business.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I'm not saying those things aren't important either. But sometimes I think because of those being so important, you do lose sight of why you write in the first place. And that's just the love of story. And it's the love of readers. And you get in an environment where you're learning who you're writing for and you learn so much from the readers because they're your ultimate audience. And apart from that, then they become your friends and your family. And it's just, it gives you purpose as a writer, which I think sometimes we need that fuel to our writing and not just the marketing, sales, ROI, numbers, spreadsheets, all that stuff that goes along with it and makes you feel overwhelmed.
0: Absolutely. And in the vein of overwhelm, Do you have a special Bible verse or maybe a song that stays close to your thoughts and heart when life and or writing becomes overwhelming?
1: I do, actually. It was one of my mom's favorite verses. It's Psalms 4, 8. And I always misquote it because I could never remember anything. So I will just look it up on the computer here while we're talking because nobody wants to paraphrase scripture. (laughs) But it says, In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And there's always been something for me about, it sounds really weird, but but about going to bed and just curling up in bed. It's like the ultimate comfort and just uh, let it all go away. If I'm down, I just want to sleep. And maybe sleep's a little bit of an escape route for me, but having read that verse and my mom holding onto it for so many years as her favorite, it's just that concept of when you're a child and you go to bed and you're safe, mom and dad tuck you in the lights go out, you hear the TV on down the hall, you know, they're still awake. Everything's fine in the world. And you just, you go asleep as a little kid. And I feel that verse is that same thought process. Of the world is racing around us, but God's just like tucking you into bed, go to sleep, dwell in safely. You're good. Be at peace. Everything's fine. I got this. Yeah. Oh
0: man,
2: That's
1: beautiful.
0: Amen.
2: Now, is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us? Or perhaps there's something that God has laid on your heart that you would like to share with your readers?
1: Well, gee whiz, that's an easy question. Oh, gosh, it's actually a good one. Um, I think it's it's one of those things that I've been thinking about words lately a lot and the importance of words. I and mean, We're in a society right now where every word seems to have a double entendre and what can I say what can't I say and what do we do with words and who do they affect and it can get overwhelming sometimes and I was thinking the other day about being an author and then also legacy and what you leave behind when you're obviously I'm always thinking about death isn't that great that sounds creepy seriously though when you think about dying at some point life is just let's be blunt it's over and what do you leave behind? And I look at my kids and things like that. And yeah, I'm leaving behind a human legacy within them. And I pray that's something that can continue. But as a writer, I'm also leaving behind words in the form of a story. And those words, we're still picking up books from Laura Ingalls Wilder, and we're still picking up books from Corey Tenboom and We're still picking up books from Charlotte Bronte and classics, right? Those words last for centuries. And so as I'm writing, I've been thinking a lot lately that the words that I'm writing are going to last a heck of a lot longer than I am. And so what words do I want to leave for that reader who in maybe 150 years is going to find the last remaining Jamie G. Wright copy because nobody cared enough to save him, right? But finds it tucked away in a little old vintage bookshop and they climb into their virtual spaceship because that's how they travel and starts reading this really outdated classic novel by a no-name author and their life could be transformed. And so that's been impressing itself on me a lot lately.
2: Yes. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, I like how you're, well, thinking ahead and what deep idea. And I also admire that so much of your focus is on giving to your readers. Um, Like you said, not some marketing and everything can be overwhelming, but really just that focus on those that are reading the words that you've written and that God has given you and making a lasting impression. That's wonderful.
0: It is kind of a responsibility as a Christian author. When you know God has given this to you, not only to entertain, but also as a ministry, because it does, in a manner of speaking, amount to teaching. And the Bible's pretty clear about people who are going to teach need to have their ducks in a row. So it is something weighty that is definitely worth giving some thought to. So yeah, that's cool. Especially when you think about anything in print, yes, does have the potential to last quite a lot longer than we do.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It really does. And it's almost creepy. I kinda wanna be there when somebody finds that book in the vintage shop, but that'd probably know, freak them right? out. So <laughs> Ask the
0: Lord if you can peep down, you know, and see what it's happens. The ghost of the author hiding in the shadows. <laughs>
3: exactly.
0: Like when you read a Christmas carol and he yeah. says that mm-hmm. the ghost was as close as I am was as close to your elbow as I am to you. I'm in spirit at your elbow or something like that. Right. Right. It's really funny. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, Kylie can cut that out, but I thought it was really funny. It- no, I
1: thought it was No, don't great. cut that out. That's great. <laughs> That's yeah. totally in line with me, so leave that in.
0: <laughs> well, let's go ahead and dive into talking about your latest release, which might be around for 150 years, <laughs> The Premonition at Withers Farm. Yes. In 1910 Michigan, Parliette Van Hilton is a self-proclaimed rural healer, but local doctor George Wozniak is convinced she's nothing but a useless quack. It doesn't help that her mother, Maribeth, claims to be a spiritualist capable of connecting the living with their dearly departed. But when the Van Hiltons are targeted by a superstitious killer, Perliette must rely on both George and an intriguing newcomer for help. Over a century later, Molly Wozniak is dealing with her own problems. Recovering from depression after multiple miscarriages, Molly's overwhelmed by her husband's purchase of a turn of the century farmhouse. Haunted by the disturbing shadows and sounds in the old building, she's pulled deep into a vintage web of deceptions after uncovering the Waziak family tree and a century-old murder case. As Perliette fights for her life in 1910, Molly seeks renewed purpose for hers as she uncovers the records of the dead. Will their voices be heard, or will time silence their truths forever?
2: Wow, that sounds spooky. (laughs) So, and on one hand, I'm looking forward to seeing how you portray a serial killer. And on the other, I'm really interested in the connection between the spiritualist healing mother-daughter duo in 1910 with modern broken-hearted Molly. Yeah.
1: (laughs) This was an interesting book to write. I will admit that right off the bat.
0: So the premonition at Withers Farm alternates between a setting in Michigan in the early 1900s and present day. What about this concept first captured your imagination?
1: So backing up a little bit, spiritualism was a really big popular thing at the turn of the century. And it, was, it had slowly grown, especially in the United States since the 1840s, when you know, there were two sisters called the Fox Sisters who supposedly had an interaction with the spirit and it just grew from there. And so over time, between Britain and the United States, spiritualism became almost like a, it was like the popular thing to do, right? And it definitely played prey on a lot of vulnerable people. And there's people like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote Sherlock Holmes, who actually got very involved in the spiritualist movement, both to see who he could debunk and who might be real. And he became a pretty devout spiritualist himself, although he was not shy to say that, yeah, some of these people are complete fakes, right? So it was really interesting to bring that. And so often the spiritualist movement has been explored in British fiction literature settings or in wealthier circles like the New York City elite. So I wanted to see what it would look like in a rural farm town with your quote unquote average person and how that might affect them both in the past and then how it still lingers around today and there's still a lot of interest in trying to contact the dearly departed and what does that play along with our Christian faith and where does all of that go so definitely had fun looking into it and finding out the twists and turns that come along with that so
0: Yes. And now Perliette Van Hilton is a healer in 1910. So what does that look like in the book? I'm thinking it's different from like your spiritualist lay hands on people and pray more, maybe like a homeopathic practitioner?
1: Exactly. That's exactly what it is. She's one of those people that has taken her time to do home studies of different ways to help people. And she's not necessarily keen on modern medicine. And she, knows she thinks that she's basically the essential oils homemaker, <laughs> which I can say because I live on essential oils. So you know, right. don't say so that I'm discriminating good. there because I love essential oils. But she's basically that person who's like, no, don't take that medicine, have this essential oil. And so there's a conflict between her and Dr. Wozniak because he's seriously, do not do this. But what was fun was I went back and researched a lot of old ways. There's some really wild things that they used to do. It's just off the wall. And so she dabbles in some of those more extreme kind of weird things. Not creepy weird, just like Weird, like why would you do that? It doesn't even make sense, and it just added some almost comic relief to the book because it, there were so many serious subjects that I wanted to make something a little quirky for people so they didn't feel too dark.
2: Um, I'm glad that was like comedic relief. I know sometimes when I'm writing, I'm and I look at medicine and like the general practices with like bloodletting and different things, and I'm like, so obviously I don't want. My hero to do something that would be detrimental, like bloodletting, unless that's yeah. going to be their backstory, or whatever. Well, uh, yeah, um, you want it to be realistic, and at the same time, it's not like
1: did they know CPR? Did they know such and such? It's funny because one of the things that it's not really a spoiler, but one of the things that she likes to prescribe is heroin. Which back oh. then, back then, yeah. Bayer, Bayer, who did Bayer aspirin, they prescribed yeah. heroin. And it wasn't even a prescription. Uh-huh. It was a cell. It was an over the counter thing that doctors and people who were licensed could get it and they would give it to their patients. And it was the replacement for, believe it or not, cocaine because cocaine was becoming addictive. So it's just kind of funny. Like, what? Let's just prescribe heroin. <laughs> Because so, that's not addictive at all. That's not addictive at all, right? She and the doctor even have a little bit of a catfight over her wanting to help this lady with heroin. And he's like, for real? Like, really? And um, so, yeah, they have some interesting interesting. I bet that made
0: for some fun conflict because they're both actually coming from a solid standpoint. When she says sometimes herbs can be more useful than modern medicine, she's right. And when he says modern medicine can be better than herbs, he's right in some cases. So it's not like a contrived conflict. They both are coming from a defensible position, but they're definitely going to clash. So I bet that was interesting to have some fun
1: with. It was fun. And again, using it more as a form of comic relief, not a soapbox against modern medicine or a soapbox against essential oils by any means, because I do both. So (laughs) like, exactly. you know, Um, but it's fun. And they really do. Both Perliette and George are very strong-willed and very opinionated and very sure that the other person should know what they think so (laughs) yeah
3: Hmm.
2: well to dive into something a little deeper um molly the modern day character is struggling with a recent loss having just had a miscarriage and this is such a delicate subject in cases like this there's this deep loss without the validation often of a funeral to honor that loss they say that One in six women who lose a baby in early pregnancy experience long-term symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. It's not something that just goes away. Another something I looked into in researching this episode is that there are 250,000 miscarriages every year. So how do you think Molly's experience in the book can raise awareness and give credibility to this type of loss?
1: This one is a little bit difficult for me because I personally suffered three miscarriages and went through a long bout with postpartum depression as a result of that. Plus my fourth child, when she was born, was a very traumatic birth, ended up in the NICU. So when I had my son and everything was very normal, that's when the, the postpartum uh, PTSD, whatever you want to call it, really kicked in. And they said it's because I was geared and I was prepared for trauma. And so I went through probably about three or four months where I was very ready for, uh, in fact, I called my sister-in-law and asked her if she would just come pick up my son because I just didn't want him any longer. And so I think it's important that this stuff is talked about. It's not easy to talk about. No mother ever wants to have their child hear that they call their aunt at some point and said, please come get this kid. I don't want him. But it's real. And it's the emotions that you go through. And then you have a miscarriage. And it's really difficult when you suffer the loss of a child once, and then you suffer again, and then you suffer it again. And you go to church the next Sunday and everything's normal. And a few people say something. But for the most part, it's like life goes on. And then, and I hate to say it, but then when you have another family in the church experience the loss of a an infant that's actually been born, it's just, it rocks the entire church. And there's a piece of the mother who's had a miscarriage who's like, mine wasn't the same. And I, they're not the same because they are different. And I don't want to ever try and compare either as the same. But what is the same is the grief, the loss. It was a life. It did pass away, whether we held it, whether we didn't hold it. And I think what makes it really difficult for women who have gone through miscarriages is that loss. I call it the ghost loss. It never existed to most people where something tangible, like a child that was born existed. It was tangible at one point and there's a grave you can go visit. There's a gravestone. There's a place to acknowledge its existence. But with miscarriages, a lot of people, even the doctors, are a little bit vague sometimes as to even whether they call it a life in the room when they tell you "Well, there's no longer a heartbeat. Um, and so the fetus, it, you know, it's always a fetus. And I'm like, why isn't it a, it's a baby? It was my baby. This is my child. And so I think it's important, getting back to the original question, to bring an awareness not just to miscarriage. I think people are pretty aware that that happens. But bringing awareness to the grief that comes along with miscarriage and that it's not a small thing. The women and the men, the fathers, go through a grieving process but unfortunately tend to go through it very quietly, in my experience at least, very unrecognized by most people with the exception of a few close friends and family. And what is also I think often not noticed is the hormonal and physiological changes that take place in the woman that cause deep depression and insomnia and anxiety and PTSD. And it's, it can be extremely difficult to navigate. So yes, I put that in the book a lot from personal experience because it's not something I felt I would have been even had the right to write about if I hadn't experienced it myself because I feel like it's that big of an issue to me.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right on. And I'm glad that readers will see the ins and outs as not as Molly navigates those challenges. So then when they do know that a friend has experienced that loss, they will have a more realistic and clearer view of what is going on in that person's life and how to pray for them. Cause it's really hard when you feel when you have that loss and maybe so few people know Just keep it that way. It's awkward. And, you know, what if someone thinks I'm perfectly fine because it wasn't a real baby? Or there are just a lot of fears that go with that. And so the more we know, the more we're aware, the more we can care and love and pray. So I'm glad that's addressed in the book. Oh, and thank you for putting yourself out there, Jamie. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's there are a lot of people there are a lot of women who have experienced miscarriages and you have a platform to put those words out there and to bring knowledge. And I'm really glad that you're just putting your heart and your grief and your struggle and your failures and everything that goes into that or what we feel like we've failed. Right,
0: um,
1: right. are just putting it
0: out
2: there. Yeah, so yeah, thank you.
1: Exactly. Yeah, you're welcome.
0: Well, what kind of writerly things do you have coming up in the future?
1: I am currently, as I'm getting prepared to see Withers Farm launch into the world, I'm also doing edits on another book that's coming out in April called The Vanishing at Castle Moreau, and I'm also finishing up a book that's coming out next year in October, that one I'm writing on right now yet to be titled. And (laughs) in the meantime, I'm doing some coaching services for writers who are looking for some mentorship. I'm doing that on the side and doing some online workshops and stuff through MadLit Mentoring, my writer platform there and spending a lot of time with my kids too. We're homeschooling this year, so we'll see how that goes. (laughs) Oh, nice. (laughs) So how many kids do you have? I have two. And I've enrolled them in several online courses because let's not trust me with the math. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> math can be a bear. Yeah. Well, that should be fun. Yeah. And busy. Very, very, very busy for sure. But it's a good it's a good kind of busy and I enjoy it. And this year I was able to get out to Oregon to the Oregon Christian Writers Conference out there. And I was in Michigan and I don't have anything booked yet for 2023, which I'm not not too upset about right now like you've done a lot of traveling so i'm kind of like oh maybe a slower year might be nice we'll see
2: all right well listeners jamie has been so gracious to offer a copy of the premonitions at withers farm to enter to win just check out our giveaway page at historicalbookworm.com you can also find the link for that giveaway in the show notes of this episode and jamie where can our listeners learn more about you
1: Yeah. So probably the easiest way is just to go to jamiejowright.com. My name is spelled J-A-I-M-E and all my social media is there. But if you want to look for me on Facebook and you don't want to go to my website, you can go to Facebook and jamiejowright at Facebook and jamiejowright at Instagram. And uh, my podcast Madlet Musings is hooked up to my Instagram through my link tree. So yeah, I'm just all over the place.
0: Now for a Pinch of the Past. Today's Pinch of the Past takes us to the Smoky Mountains of eastern Tennessee to explore the history behind a little hidden gem called the House of the Fairies.
2: (gasps) Oh, wow. The
0: House of the Fairies. I'm very interested now. Do you okay. In 1928, a successful businessman from Cincinnati, Ohio named Louis Vorheis wanted to create a mountain retreat away from the crowds. So he also, I believe, had a home in Knoxville and which is not terribly far away from the Smoky Mountains so he ended up settling on a 100 acre piece of land in the Roaring Fork area of the Smoky Mountains about a mile away from Gatlinburg, Tennessee the property was owned by a man named Harve Oakley and included several mountain springs as well as two creeks named Mill Creek and Scratch Bridges Branch <laughs> <laughs> you got to oh, know I'll bet that was named by a hillbilly <laughs> gotta know this is the mountains in the backwoods he actually ended up changing the name of mill creek to leconte creek which is after one of the mountains nearby where the creek would flow from but he left scratch Bridges branch he left that name
2: <laughs> really it oh is. that's funny how silly because it's the other one is so like sophisticated and then that one's
0: just plain exactly, old American. exactly <laughs> somebody was having fun when they named that one So he was an inventor and he enjoyed playing with water power. So his first project was to build a dam on the property for hydroelectric power. And he was just getting started. He loved channeling the natural flow of water on the property. He used native stone and rustic wooden bridges. He built a swimming pool fed by the mountain waters as well as stone fountains to decorate his gardens. There was lots of plumbing on the property. He really wanted to create a beautiful yet rustic and natural-looking retreat. There were gardens for vegetables. There was an apple orchard. He had a water-powered mill, a horse barn. But everything was supposed to kind of blend in and be very aesthetic. Oh, wow. Now, the land was already within the boundary of the proposed National Park when Mr. Vorheis purchased it, although it's unknown whether he discovered that fact before or after he purchased the land. However, as a businessman and a philanthropist, he came up with a solution. He worked directly with the Tennessee Park Commission and the National Park Service and arranged to donate his land, securing a lifetime lease on the estate for himself and for his widow if he died first.
2: Oh, yes. wow. At least then he didn't lose it because I know a few people in that area did lose their homes when the the Smoky Mountains National Park came through. I think Karen Barnett wrote a book where that was one of the issues that the main character had was that her grandparents or great-grandparents had lost Absolutely. their land.
0: Yeah. He was wealthy, so he knew how to navigate it and he made the deal. It's like, if I donate it, I'll just live here. It wasn't going to be a huge loss for him. It wasn't his whole life like it was for a lot of the people. But in 1933, Twin Creeks Orchard, which is what he named the property, became the only private property to be donated for the Smoky Mountains National Park. It was appraised at the time for $100,000, and the appraisal records, among other things, 14 structures, a pump house, three septic tanks, 1,800 feet of piping and valves, machinery in a shop, two 750-gallon water takes, and a stone spring house called the House of the Fairies. Oh, wow. Quite the little village. It was. The Oakleys and some of their family that he bought the property from actually stayed on as caretakers. There is a woman named Louise Cole Little, who is the daughter of Homer Cole, who cared for the orchard and vegetable garden on the property. She was also the granddaughter of Harve Oakley. In an interview in 2016, she said that Mr. Voorhees, quote, cared very much for the people who worked for him, end quote. He built homes for his employees as well as for the guests. They ate food grown on the land. Louise grew up just playing all over this land. The employees attended Mr. Voorhees' wedding on the property in 1934. And when the land was donated, they were allowed to live there until they could find employment and homes elsewhere. They, it wasn't just that their life ended. He definitely created a buffer for them probably better than a lot of the other people around who were forced to sell and move off their land.
2: That's really nice that he was so caring and stood in the gap to make sure they weren't taken advantage of or just tossed out homeless.
0: Exactly. It's, he wasn't just your average businessman who was like going to buy a piece of property and try to make money. He was doing this for something that was peaceful and enjoyable for him, but also he ended up employing several people who lived in the area. Some people lived in town. Some people you know, who lived in the nearby property. So it was actually cool to read about. He died in 1944 at the age of 69, only 16 years after first buying the land for his mountain retreat. He was cremated in Cincinnati, but one of the caretakers of the estate, Clifford Oakley, stated that he actually buried Mr. Voorhees' ashes on the property behind the Voorhees mansion, but the exact location is unknown. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm.
2: Hmm.
0: Some of the buildings still stand, serving the National Park Service as offices. In the past, they were actually residences for National Park employees, but they're just offices now. Most of the beautiful landscaping has been overtaken by the woods, but the most notable remnant still preserved is the Stone Spring House, hidden on a hillside behind the Resource Center and other buildings off Cherokee Orchard Road. It's it's built into the hillside with a curved stone roof and the water still flows into the spring house and then flows down the mountain in a little creek. It's very beautiful. So if you enjoy an easy hike in the Smoky Mountains area, look up the Twin Creeks trail and see if you can find your way to the House of the Fairies. It's a quiet place, moss covered and run down, a piece of a man's dream come true blending in with the woods around it.
1: Time for our bookworm review.
2: Above the Fold by Rachel Scott McDaniel After losing the love of her life to a big city journalism job, Alyssa Tillman pours herself into the suffragette movement and her secretarial work, helping keep her father's Pittsburgh newspaper afloat. Cole Parker returns to the steel city with the phantom failures of his past nipping his heels. All he asks of the future is a second chance with a woman he once spurned. The murder of a millionaire offers the perfect chance for Alyssa to prove to her father and the world that she's a serious journalist. But there's a catch. She has to compete for the story against none other than Cole Parker, the very man who shattered her heart.
3: Hello, dearies. This is Angela Bell bringing you today's Bookworm Review. You can connect with me at my website, www.authorangelabell.com. I fell in love with Rachel Scott McDaniel's writing when I read her hidden gem of a book, The Red Canary. Her atmospheric prose and flair for historic detail hooked me from page one, and by the end, I was adding her other titles to my BookBub wishlist. I'm pleased to report that her debut novel, Above the Fold, was everything I'd hoped and more. McDaniel's evocative writing makes the Roaring Twenties come alive, and her multifaceted characters zing off the page. Cole and Alyssa's snappy dialogue and sleuthing shenanigans made for a fun, fast-paced plot, and the murder mystery kept me guessing to the very end. And by guessing, I mean McDaniel totally got me with that doozy of a plot twist. As a voracious reader, I can usually spot a plot twist coming a mile away, but this one was executed so deftly that when it was revealed, my cloche hat flew away with my blown mind. If you enjoy quick-witted romances and a good gumshoe mystery, you're sure to agree that above the fold is the bee's knees.
2: So how are you doing today, Darcy? Darcy.
0: I'm doing pretty well. I actually went to visit our lighthouse this afternoon, which was really fun. Um, But I got to take a two-week vacation to the Smoky Mountains in September. It was a working vacation, so I brought my computer with me. But on the weekends, we would go out into the mountains. We went to Cades Cove, which is one of the prettiest places in Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Um, There are a lot of historic cabins there. So there's, you know, tons of history, but they also keep the fields mown in the, in the middle of the cove. So you get these beautiful vistas of the mountains across the valley. It's, it's just a beautiful, beautiful place. So I enjoyed my time up there being down in Florida. You know, it's still pretty warm in September, but I got to enter into fall a little bit sooner up there in Tennessee. Very nice. Did you share any of those photos on social media? I have not yet. I've got a ton of <laughs> pictures, but I haven't gotten around to sharing them. I know. I know. I'm terrible. Wait a minute. I haven't seen any of these photos of
2: beautiful vistas because I follow you on social media.
0: <laughs> yes, I am. Um, I've been stingy, apparently. I uh, Yes, there, there's no proof yet. I got to post them. Mm-hmm. What have you been up to lately?
2: Well, we have a fall tradition where we go to the pumpkin patch every year, which I just absolutely love. My kids are all getting older now, but they they still go and have fun. So I I have a twelve year old, a fourteen year old, and a my daughter. My oldest will turn sixteen next week. Wow! Um, but we yeah, we still go. We go on the hayride and we get apple cider slushies and. Oh, they have coffee and donuts and homemade um, apple cider. And the pumpkin patch is at this beautiful farm. So we get to see all the different fall vegetables. We drive, you know, along the fields and see the different squashes and pumpkins and tomatoes are just finishing up. And oh, the peppers. And then we we'll go along. The apples are pretty much done now, but we get to go by the apple orchard. And just really beautiful and wonderful. Um, family time. We had some family there and they had their their little kids with them and my big kids kind of helped keep track of them. So it was just a really nice time. Um, I took maybe four photos. <laughs> so I probably, I might have a little bit on social media for those photos if anyone wants to see them.
0: <laughs> but y'all were mostly just enjoying yourselves. So Yes.
2: Yeah, I just got so caught up. I was just having fun.
0: Absolutely. I I haven't been to a pumpkin farm in in forever. But we used to go to um, a historic farm in Alabama that was still a working farm, but they had their farm day and they exhibited all sorts of crafts and things like that. And they did have a pumpkin field where you could go and, and pick a pumpkin too big for you to carry if you wanted. So mm. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed that. Well, for our listeners, I hope that you will join us in our Historical Bookworm listeners group on Facebook and share some of the things that you are doing this fall. Maybe make us jealous or give us some good ideas because I love October.
1: Me too. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.